The name of the talk this evening is Resting the Mind Before It Falls into Extremes. Resting the Mind Before It Falls into Extremes. And so this is all about equanimity, the practice that we have begun this afternoon. Because it takes a large measure of this ability to rest the mind before it falls into extremes, to be able to do our practice on the cushion in a way that continually lets us open the mind and the heart, exploring the mind and body and heart relationship. It's also, of course, a great boon to be able to live our lives with a heart big enough to open to all the ups and downs that we face in the world, in our lives, within our families. It's important to be able to open to all of these ups and downs the way it is in the world without closing down in denial, without denying that it's happening, of course, or closing down simply in resistance or aversion where we might actually push away at it, strike out at it. Or the other part of um, the other way that we may respond or react to the world is we cling to our idea of how we think it should be. And because we have this idea so uh, strongly in our minds all the time or much of the time, it's hard for us to see how it actually is if we're always thinking about or clinging to an idea of how we think it should be. So these are the various ways that we react to life. And of course, reactivity is the direct opposite of equanimity, reactivity. So if we can take stock of how much we... uh, out of habit, react. React means we're not thinking about how we're doing it. It's just the default setting of the mind. It just goes there and does its thing without having a chance to make a choice, to bring in wisdom and uh, consider what to do in a wise way. So one subjective experience of equanimity is when the heart and mind feels spacious. Spacious in that it can allow what is happening to be seen. It doesn't mean spacious that we just allow everything to happen to us, but it's slightly different perspective on that, which is uh, makes a makes a big difference is in that we uh, feel the spacious mind that's able to actually let in without pushing away or without covering up to actually see what's happening in a very clear way, in an even-minded way. So equanimity connotes balance. And uh, this is often spoken of in the ancient text as even-mindedness. So you can see with this even-mindedness, it's not where we're pushing away or resisting or insisting on a certain way that it should be. 
Also, there is a subjective experience of quietness, inner quietness. There's uh, uh, not big ripples going on in the mind about what's going on outside of us. So because of this, there's a lot of clarity. The mind is like a still forest pool that is able to reflect everything around it with, uh, in a mirror-like way, with great clarity. And there's this ability in, with a mirror-like pool of the mind to be able to see deeply into the mind and to know not just what it is reflecting on the outside, but what's going on on the inside. So this absence of ripples because of this sense of calm, very important in terms of being able to open in an ever-deepening way to our experiences on the cushion or in the world. So we're able to experience life or any particular event or situation of life or moments, just moments of the arising and passing away of experience that we see on the sitting cushion that bring us such wisdom. So it doesn't mean that nothing is going on inside, actually. Uh, If there is something going on inside, if there's a sense of compassion or if wisdom arises out of that, there's the ability for that to come up. So it's not a cold aloofness or an emotional emptiness. There's a lot of connection with what's going on. Nothing is being covered up with ignorance. So in fact, uh, out of that can come the warmth of compassion. I spoke this afternoon how it is said and experienced by uh, myself and, and many others that when compassion can arise in a very genuine, authentic way, it's because there is a lot of equanimity already in the heart. Because that equanimity, it is said, leads the way for true compassionate action to take place. Without that equanimity, then we're just reacting to the circumstances of our outer life. And there's, there can be a lot of anger there. So anger has, a good ener- has an energy of action to it. But uh, with equanimity, we can have this energy of action, but not the energy of anger that's with it, or self-righteous indignation that can often come with, uh, in response or reactivity to the events of the world. So there can be a a fullness of wise understanding because there's a clear connection with what's going on. And from that fullness of wise understanding, there can be a wise response, not a reactivity out of ignorance or out of just coming out of our habit patterns that aren't so wholesome all the time. But there's a chance to bring in some wholesomeness some uh, wisdom, and that wisdom can accompany our action or our words. So there are the usual ups and downs of life. Sometimes they're intense. Sometimes they can be subtle. 
I mentioned the eight vicissitudes of life uh, this afternoon. Praise and blame, gain and loss, fame and disrepute, pleasure and pain. All of these, of course, can go on in our lives, around us. And uh, we, we see that it's happening. It doesn't mean that life is going to be just a big blah with equanimity. It's just that it's seen more clearly without that kind of response that causes even more trouble for ourselves and others. So the mind and heart makes room for whatever is happening. Um, There was earlier on in my uh, Dharma experience, things used to happen, of course, and I used to just insist that this shouldn't be happening. There would be people nearby in my neighborhood getting hurt um, in all kinds of ways, Um, things happening in the local government, things happening in my own family. And I would say to my teacher, Manindra, who spent some uh, various times, he spent um, a month here, two months there with, with us and our family. And I used to say, why is this happening? It shouldn't be this way. And I just had this kind of young idealistic view uh, or, you know, kind of putting my view on what should be happening. And he would constantly tell me for many, many times, Kamala, this is the way it is. And it would be unacceptable to me. It doesn't mean that, um, you know, that what is happening is right if it's wrong. We can see the rightness, we can see the wrongness, but with equanimity, there's no insistence that we have to change whatever has already manifested. And there was a big part of me that couldn't accept what already was and is already happening. He used to say to me, um, first I want to give some definition of some words when Manindra would say the Dharma or the Dhamma, he would talk about the, uh, the way, the natural way that things unfold. Dharma means the natural unfolding of life, basically. And so when he would talk about the law, he would mean this natural unfolding of life, the Dharma, the law. And sometimes when things would be happening, he would say, uh, this is the law. Surrender to the law. This is how it is right now. So this too is part of life. All of the ups and downs, praise and blame, gain and loss, pleasure and pain, fame and disrepute. And much of our suffering has to do with not being able to face this not being able to face these ups and downs with uh, a mind that's realistic, that can see it clearly without fighting it. There are Dharma stories from various um, suttas and metaphors that are given from nature about equanimity. And some of them describe equanimity as like the sky or like clear space 
that can contain everything and hold anything without pushing it away. It just allows the experience to arise because it has already arisen and to change and to pass away. And sometimes when uh, there is equanimity present in our own minds and hearts, it can feel like that. It's not that we're allowing ourselves to be trampled on. It's just allowing things to be there because they're already there. And nothing we can do about it now except clearly see it so that if there is a response necessary, we can clearly respond. It, this clear space of the mind, this spaciousness, doesn't reject or eject anything. It allows a transience of whatever is happening to happen. So there's not resisting what's already happening. There's not overlaying a strong sense of it should be this way and plaster that all over what's happening. Taking some time to just see it as it is. So if our minds are spacious and clear like that, it allows this honesty to happen. Um, A lot of our taking the precept of speaking the truth, for me, has a clear connection, a direct connection to being able to see the truth. One time, um, to make a long story short, I was with one of our teachers, Seda Upandita, and uh, something had transpired and uh, with some people that I was with in a retreat. And he gave a Dharma talk that said, how can you see the truth? How can you stand on the truth if you cannot speak the truth? And the part about speaking the truth is a whole other story. But it really pointed out to me at that time how important it was to be able to see things as they are, not how I insist they should be, or not uh, rejecting or resisting them. So this whole um, idea, this whole trajectory of my practice to really see things as they are began to open for me. Not only to notice the outer events of the world clearly and with some balance, but to notice the inner events of my life in my heart, in, in the mind, clearly and with balance. So both of those became very important to me, the outer ability to uh, see clearly because of that balance and the ability to see my heart clearly because of that balance, so that I wasn't camouflaging anything. I wasn't overlaying any kind of idea upon uh, any experience that was uh, being experienced in my heart, mind. But clearly being able to see, as Steve was pointing out last night, this is a defilement. This is an unwholesome state of mind. And not making excuses for myself not defending it or not turning the mind somewhere else because I couldn't face it, but to clearly face it. Um, So very important in, in that regard. 
So when we're able to notice these outer events and inner events clearly, when we notice in our hearts that there is an absence of greed, of hatred, of uh, delusion, or there is a great lessening of it, and we're, we're, we feel confident that we can take action, then we take action. Sometimes I've seen that um, I didn't have that clear mind. I wasn't able to see clearly about what was happening. So refraining from action at that, time, at that particular time was a thing to do because of having uh, some greater balance of seeing clearly. Then our words and deeds have a powerful healing effect whenever we say them, or they have a powerful transformative effect, even though it may seem like uh, from someone else, from their perspective, that it's coming from a harsh place. From my heart, I may know it's coming from a clean place. And maybe it'll cause a little bit of wiggling of that person's, um, you know, feeling uncomfortable about hearing those words. But sometimes we see that sometimes certain words need to be heard or need to be offered. And whatever, if they're accepted, fine. If they're not, it's okay, too just remembering various times when my our own teacher, the same Seda Upandita, would say words that would seem harsh, but actually they came from incredible, fierce compassion because of his um, great confidence in our ability to transform. Uh, and so to be able to receive it in a way that I really, truly could trust that was important for me. One time I saw him after a long time of not seeing him, and I went to um, visit him and offer him a meal. He was coming down some stairs, and I put my hands together, and I said with great happiness, I'm so happy to see you, venerable sir. I'm so happy to see you. And he said something in Burmese. Um, he just answered me something. And then we sat down and had a little exchange. And I offered a meal uh, to him. And then uh, the translator said, um, I, I would like to tell you what the Seadao has said when he came down the stairs in response to your greeting. And I was wondering if I really wanted to hear that. But uh, I did say, go ahead, uh, let me know. And he said, the Seadao says to you, the teacher says to you, I'm not here to make you happy. I'm here to make you mindful. And it was like, whoa. <laughs> and he was very clear to him, you know, what his responsibility was. And Actually, I have respected him ever much more because I just have a sense that he doesn't care if I like him or not. <laughs> you know, it's it just matters to him that um, I become liberated. That's what really matters to him. To have someone like that in your life, whoa, 
that is truly a blessing for me, to have someone like that in my life. So His Holiness, the Dalai Lama, is a great example, a great model of navigating his world, not just with compassion and fierce compassion too at times, but with equanimity. He says, in that state of mind, you can deal with the situation with calmness and reason while keeping your inner happiness. So, you know, you get the the gist of it, how it is that that spaciousness makes that calmness. That spaciousness means that we're not in a pressure cooker with life. Uh, Things can come in, they can change, they can pass away. It's just all part of life. There's that calm acceptance, not resignation, but just calm acceptance to whatever is already. So in that state of mind, you can see with, without any lenses, without the lens of aversion or clinging. So just a, an example of that. A, we have a friend long-time friend who comes and helps us to cook retreats. And um, he was uh, had a newer cook on the staff, and he was taking, uh, listening to the newer cook and taking advice from the newer cook, listening to his new ideas and um, ways that he was enthusiastically thinking you know, an offering, maybe it could be done this way or that way. Well, it had been done for a long time in, in the particular way that this um, head cook was doing it. Now, they're both very fine and generous people. It's just that personality thing, you know, that we all come up against sometimes. So it was so hard for the, um, you know, the original person who was on board to, uh, to just go through this, that it was at the point where he was going to leave. And of course, I was really concerned because there wouldn't be enough help at that point. And I was thinking that maybe I'm going to have to get in there and cook and teach at the same time. So it was something of a concern to me, of course. But he decided to keep his mind open. And we were doing metta practice, we were doing, and also some equanimity practice. And he said he was just going to see if he can keep his balance around it. So one day, we would talk about it once in a while, and one day he came to me and he said that he was seeing things with more of a calm mind. And he saw that actually some of the things that were suggested were really good suggestions when he didn't have this reactivity of... um, I'm, you know, I'm right and he's wrong. So he came up with this equanimity mantra that began to help him in his uh, relationship with this person. And so he said his mantra was, maybe he's right. And so every (laughs) every time he spoke with that person, just to keep his mind open, he would say that mantra. This was kind of on the spot equanimity. Maybe he's right. Maybe he's right. And so he was able to chill out a little bit more. 
And then he came to me another time, and we were we would just talk about it, not exactly in an interview, but just sitting down and talking, like we say in Hawaii, talking story about um, whatever's going on. And he said <clears throat> he realized how much of a hell realm he'd been in, with not so much because of that person's suggestions, but because of his reactivity to that person. You know, his clinging to how he wanted it to be and his resistance to what was coming up. And so he said, just such a hell realm. And he said, my new mantra or equanimity phrase is, oh, well. And I said, well, that's really interesting. Oh, well. And he said, Kamala, if it's not oh, well, it's oh, hell. (laughs) So... So once in a while, I find myself saying that too, getting into a situation and um, like thinking that you're going going to catch the plane and then all of a sudden you see this long line in security and you knew you should have been a half an hour earlier, but you're not. Well, so it's just, oh, well, if you don't catch the plane, oh, well. So that's a really interesting place to be in, you know, when when we learn it in our, on our sitting cushion, when we get out into the world and we see that equanimity coming up, just whatever phrase we've used here gets transferred over at difficult times in our lives. So there, there are situations, though, when we've already reacted inwardly to a situation with some kind of ill will, or wanting it to be different than it is already manifesting. And that has already happened. It's already done with. But what we're left with is the ill will, is the strong clinging, is the place in our, is the actual reactivity that already happened in our hearts. So the thing to do then is to turn equanimity towards that place in our hearts, towards the attitude of our minds and hearts, and to bring a a measure of balance there. Maybe it's through a phrase that says, okay, this is how it is right now. Or uh, the traditional phrase of equanimity is, all beings are owners of their actions. Their happiness or unhappiness depends upon their actions and not upon my wishes. How I wished it could be, it didn't happen that way. Already reacted. So I could see from my own inner experience the effect of that reactivity. All beings are owners of their actions. There was immediate Uh, seeing of that. So sometimes I'll say that phrase, ownership of action, just kind of shorten it. and See, okay, I I own this. Something came out in reactivity, and now I can see the pain in my own heart because of that. So that immediate uh, kind of karmic understanding that comes up there. So as a mother of grown children, and and many of you are parents, or even if you're not parents, you understand how it is to be with children in your own ways, to be with um, 
how it can be when uh, children act out or the young ones act out and how difficult it is to just be able to be with that. It said that equanimity is that kind of feeling that you have when you see things happen uh, with your children or with even other people's children and you see that they're acting out or things are not going well in their life and you understand, well, this is the way it is for grown, for those growing up. You know, the, the terrible twos and the times when they get into their hormonal years and um, sometimes when it gets really difficult with people I love that are close to me, all of a sudden a vision of them as a child comes in and it just really helps me not to react so much. Just to see, not that they're childish, but to see sometimes um, it helps me to see that these things come out as as natural occurrences in people's lives, that people respond in certain ways due to their own pain, due to their own habit patterns. So it's said that equanimity is not a precarious balancing, like being on a razor's edge, and there's stiffness and rigidity and fear of falling on to one side and hurting oneself or falling to the other and hurting oneself. But there is a sense of a very wide stance. So it's, it's not that precarious balancing, razor's edge, but it's like a mountain. Uh, oftentimes in the scriptures, in the ancient texts, the metaphor is a mountain, a mountain that's very uh, stable and uh, very, very uh, solid. We live on the side of a mountain, Haleakala, a dormant volcano. And we live in a place where I can look out a window and see lots happening on the mountain. Uh, Not so long ago, last year, there was a fire on Polipoli Park, one of the parks that, um, beautiful parks that actually have some native Hawaiian uh, trees and plants. And so saw this incredible fire just racing uh, through the, just above us, not so far away. And there are times when I've seen lightning strike the side of the mountain or even on top of the mountain every seven years or so there's snow uh, very unusual to see in a tropical country, tropical place. And then sometimes there's a lot of wetness and rain. There's, we have a little a kind of like um, gul- gully or gulch where when it rains hard, it's really full and we have to go over our little bridge to, um, you know, to get out of our place where we live. And sometimes it's really dry and there's a drought. And so everything is brown looking up the mountain. And so you see the different weather patterns that happen on something, the earth so close to us, the terrain around us. And sometimes I notice in my own mind the weather patterns of the mind and see that it happens sometimes that uh, 
Uh, It's like that too there. There can be a raging fire because of anger. There can be a lot of wetness because of sadness and tears. Uh, There can be a lot of dryness. There can be a a feeling of drought uh, within me where, you know, I just don't feel like giving anything sometimes, maybe out of tiredness. Or sometimes there can be a lot of lushness and a lot of green and a lot of beauty that can naturally come out. And so we start to see the weather patterns of the mind as very natural, like the weather patterns of the earth around us. The extremes and subtleties of the cold and the heat, the snow and the sun, the wet and the dry season, the floods and the droughts, the light and the darkness. And it helps us to open to birth and all the changing seasons that come between birth and then death and even open to old age, sickness, and death, which is very, very, a very difficult thing to open to sometimes. The decay, the drying out, even of this body. And so equanimity, the balance of the mind, the evenness of the mind can come to open to all of that. The weather patterns inside, the weather patterns outside. So as human beings, with that inner balance, stability, we can say this is part of life, praise and blame, gain and loss, uh, dryness, the droughts that come, the beauty that comes, the birth, the death, all of this is part of life. And from that honest recognition, we find in ourselves a lot of resilience. Sure, sometimes we open to something and it's, we feel some, oh, some, I don't want it to be that way, just kind of holding on to something that we uh, want it to be like, like never growing old. Or maybe we're resisting the very same thing and we feel a lot of aversion in our minds and hearts. But with this uh, honest recognition of what's happening, We can even see that going on inside of us. And in uh, in more more quick way, we can say, okay, this too is part of life. My sadness because of losing the way it was with my children being small, and now they're all grown, and now they're totally uncontrollable, you know. So... It's really um, that resilience of being able to see what's going on outside, see what's going on inside, and just be resilient with it all. To be able to respond as needed without being overcome by overwhelm. So responding as needed, just a very perfect example of the people on our staff who worked with our emergency this afternoon, just I just saw the clarity of what needed to be done and the stepping forth to do it and the not getting overwhelmed by what was happening, but by really staying steady, by really having that even-mindedness 
to have the presence of mind to do what was needed to be done. Many things, many twists and turns happened along the way with needs to contact certain people and all the things that happened in in good order. And uh, that resilience, that open-mindedness, that ability to feel the maybe some fear, some worry in the mind and the heart, but to be equanimous around that as well and still go forth and do what was needed to be done uh, in this particular case. So just remembering when I, a, a situation when I couldn't be like that, when my own daughter was in the hospital and uh, my eldest daughter and she was having a surgery on uh, some cancer which turned out to be okay in the end. And so now she's almost five years without it. And so during that time I was in the hospital with her. She was undergoing a lot of pain. It was that period of time when she they were just figuring out what the correct kind of medication for her pain would be. And it wasn't quite right yet, so she was in a lot of pain. And my heart was just uh, overwhelmed with worry and all kinds of things. I couldn't even name them now. But literally, she was in the bed before me. I was um, watching her and kind of leaning against the wall. And she said, Mom, you got to do something. you got to go out and ask the nurses or something like that, similar And she could literally see me kind of slinking against the wall, you know, just starting to fall to pieces a little bit. I knew I wouldn't go all the way, but I was going, oh my God, you know, just my daughter. I never thought it would happen, you know, my own daughter having this situation and then going through this pain, a little overwhelming. She saw me going through that, and she said, Mom, Mom, don't go there. (laughs) I need you. And so I really had to just get it together and say, Yeah, right, okay, just notice what was going on inside, understand this is how it is outside, and just take the steps I needed to take to help her without um, falling apart, because then we're no help at all when we do that. So, of course, it's not without a quality of caring and loving-kindness. When there is this unshakable balance of mind, it's endowed with great, great care. It's the care of patience, the care of loving-kindness, and that's what equanimity is. It's not dry, it's not hollow or shallow, It's not disconnected. It has all of that connection. It has the the caring there. It has the evenness of mind, the patience, the resilience. So if we begin to fall apart, we can just come back again and respond as needed in, in a wise way. It's said that equanimity gives metta its unconditional quality. I spoke a little about that this afternoon. Um, Without this unwavering loyalty to be with our friends during the difficult times 
in the natural processes of life. That's what true friendship is all about. I know sometimes it's so hard and we feel betrayed and um, people can hurt us really, really bad who are our friends. And then there are times when we know that we can stand beside them and no matter what happens in the, in the good times and the bad times. So that's what gives metta its unconditional quality. Um, so many times in my own life, in, there have been my own friends who have done hurt me, and it's, it's not necessarily huge, um, where it uh, closed my heart down. That's happened too, and I've had to stay away for a while. But um, a lot of times when I felt they have acted in ways, of course, that hurt. But, uh, you know, to keep my heart closed down would be like the second arrow. It already hurt, you know, that first arrow. And then to have aversion again and again and resentment, um, that would be even a greater pain to bear. So it's, it's accepting the ups and downs with, of life in others as well. And it's not this insistence that it, it always be perfect, you know, the perfect friendship. Um, it has to be always in harmony. Sometimes there's disharmony, and we work with that too. So the, a story about our daughter, Therese. She's my daughter and Steve's stepdaughter, and he helped to raise her at a time when he came into my life uh, when she was 13, going on 14, you know, like 13 going on 24. And it was really, really hard for her. And I know that I was a difficult person in her life. And um, and she was a difficult person in my metta practice. Oftentimes, the people we love the most get into that. They get demoted, you know, and they get in that category. <laughs> and um, But just with a lot of compassion, I can say, you know, it, and equanimity now, oftentimes not then, I could say, that was just part of the process of life. It's what all of my other three children went through. So in my practice with her, I had to add to my metta practice when I would say, may you be peaceful and happy. Because, you know, it was my genuine true wish for her. But even though I wished that for her uh, and offered that goodwill to her over and over again, I could see that it was just hard, a hard time for her in life, and she didn't smile a lot, and things were happening that were difficult. Um, so I had to add to it, um, I ca- like, I care about you, may you be happy and peaceful, and may I accept how it is for you right now. Because sometimes I couldn't, sometimes it was really hard. So I had to add that equanimity phrase. May I accept how it is for you right now? Or sometimes I would know that I was accepting it and just say, and 
this is how it is for you right now. And so all of that was uttered, of course, with a lot of compassion. It wasn't just like a dry phrase. Sometimes even with my own, with my children now, I say, they're all grown. All beings have their journey, the phrase that I've offered to you. And it's really helped me to, um, to really just let go. Of course, it doesn't mean that I don't stop giving my love and my care, nor does it mean that I stop giving my advice. Probably they wish I would stop giving my advice all the time, but most of the time they're not resistant to it. Equanimity means as um, a friend, as uh, an elder to someone, even as a young person to someone older, you give all of your care, you do everything you can, you help them in every way possible, and then you just must let go of the attachment to the result of that. It may not turn out the way you want it to be exactly, and it oftentimes does not turn out that way. It usually turns out in in a pretty good way, but oftentimes not exactly as you would want it to be. And so all beings have their journey means to me, I offer what I can, the energy of my motherhood to them, my deep, unconditional love. But their, go- their lives are going to play out in a way that is beyond my control. Their karmic stream is so much more powerful than any, anything that I drop into it. And I've dropped a lot into it already. <laughs> so it's still much, much more powerful. The, the way that their karmic river flows is beyond my control. I can say to them when I know they're getting in trouble or when I can see trouble around the bend, I can say, be careful. I've been through something similar and I know it's going to be painful on the other side of that uh, if you don't watch out. And many times, you know, they just do, of course, what they see is right to do and it turns out in the way it does, painful. And um, even when they followed advice, you know, it's painful. Or they've listened to, all oh, that it might be dangerous going down that way. It's still painful. So all I can do is just keep loving and keep caring and staying balanced so that I can be of true help to them. So this... Um, youngest one, Therese, by the way, she gets royalties for every story that we tell on her. Don't worry. (laughs) And we have permission. So, but I often tell this particular story because it, it just, um, is a metaphor a lot. The things that happen for opening the heart so big that we can really, um, take in all the experiences of our own heart not just the experiences out there. So this was a time when she was graduating from college, from high school, and she had already told us that she was leaving home, and soon after that. 
and um, she was, she's very clear about what she wants to do. And, um, okay, this is, this is going to happen. This is how it is right now. And she came to our uh, bed in the morning, and I remembered when she walked in the room, I was thinking, she has come into this bedroom so many times, and even as a little little baby, you know, I nursed her while I would do, be doing my meditation practice. And here she comes, this big, tall woman, you know, 5'10", almost 5'11", her head's on my, uh, on my lap, and her feet are just dangling off the side, and I'm stroking her head. And I'm remembering all the times that it was so beautiful to see her grow up, you know, the times to see her running along the beach or doing her dance or doing her swim when she was on the team, and... Um, learning how to do all kinds of new things, riding her bike, making cookies, etc. And now here she was, you know, going on her own. And I also remembered the other times that she didn't come home one night, you know, and we were really worried. Turned out to be safe, but, you know, that was a big deal for us. And times when the car three times when the car got <laughs> bumped, but luckily she wasn't hurt. Um, and other times like that, you know, the times when she would say, that I know she's told me she regrets, you're not a good mother, you know, I hate you for my mother. And, oh, that was really a hard thing to hear. But it was... That's how she was feeling. She was in a lot of pain. Well, so I was there, though all those times going through the heart and going through the mind. So tears falling, you know, she's going now. She's going now. And so one tear is like, don't go. And the other tear is like, please go. You know, (laughs) And just the ability to say, yeah, that's what a mother's heart is like. I'm not, I can't, I don't reject any of it. I don't reject the hard times, nor do I cling to the beauty, the beautiful times. It was all just like it was, and now it's like it is. And now she's going, this is the fact of life. So just to be able to have that expansiveness and that spaciousness of a balanced heart that gives that immeasurable inclusivity. So, um, so it's not just, you know, the inclusivity of what goes on in our hearts, but to include all beings everywhere. This is what, when we do the uh, metta practice for all beings... It's what dissolves the boundaries between males and females, between, um, you know, basically us and them. It's what dissolves the boundaries and allows us to open to all beings with great care, breaks down the barriers of discrimination and exclusivity. 
so that evenness of heart is such a protection. It doesn't let us get caught in delusion because when equanimity is there, it's just clearly seeing what's going on in the moment without pushing it away. So we have a chance to respond then on a level that's uh, wise, on a level that's gentle. A lot of times people think that, oh, you know, this equanimity, it's like, what do you do? Just stand there and say, this is how it is right now. I hope I keep making the point that, of course, you take action. You don't just keep standing or sitting there and saying, this is how it is right now, and you don't do anything at all. So I just want to give you a, an example that sometimes, as I know for myself, stories say a lot more than words that are kind of can be just like theory. So there was this time when um, I lived in a certain place where I lived on a corner where I could see outside the stop sign and people going uh, and stopping at the stop sign and then either turning left or right because that was a a dead-end street and we were on one corner of it. And so I could see all the neighbors go by and it was nice, you know, it's nice to have that neighborhood connection and all. So this one time as Volkswagen came by and was stopped for a while and I heard a lot of loud noises coming from the Volkswagen and then I heard a lot of screaming and a lot of crying. There was a young, uh, uh, sounded like a youngster and I looked out the window And I didn't know what to do. I said, "Um, something's wrong. Maybe somebody, I saw some people around, they might have done something, but nobody was stopping to do anything. Um, And I thought, well, maybe it'll pass. Maybe something just is briefly wrong and they're going to fix it up and they'll pass. But it kept continuing. And so I really got um, a sense that something was wrong and needed to take action. Of course, my heart was pounding really hard, and I saw that nobody was doing anything. So I went outside, and I went to the car door, and I looked in the window, and I could see as I was approaching even that there was somebody hurting another person, and there was a young youngster in the back crying a lot, and the person that was being hurt was, you know... Um, looked like a little bit helpless. So I opened the door to the passenger side quickly, and with all my might and with a very loud voice, I said, get out of the car, and I just pulled her out of the car. And, um, you know, I and I didn't have to say stop. I just said, get out of the car. She came out of the car, the person drove away. We brought the little, turned out to be a little boy. We went to the house and took care of what her immediate needs were um, as far as soothing her, etc., giving her some water and letting her sit down. And then um, I said, you know, maybe you need to call someone like the authorities or the police or something mentioned that this has happened before. And so she insisted, 
no, she didn't want to do that. And that was her call. And I felt like, you do what you can, but it's just, you know, there's so much that's not in our control. So we helped, I helped at that point. And who knows what happened after that. And maybe, may it all have gone well, but we don't know. So you help, you do everything you can, but you can't control everything. And so I didn't just sit there in my house and listen to all of that and say, yeah, this is the way it is right now. There's someone screaming. There's someone maybe getting hurt. You, t- you take action. And with that balance of mind, your action can be very, very um, powerful. So the Buddha would say, when liberation of mind by equanimity is developed, no limiting action remains there. None persists there. So no limiting action, taking action. So that the far enemy is reactivity and the near enemy is apathy. So not taking action, not caring, this is apathy or indifference, just kind of being blank inside or feeling that empty kind of aloofness, that dry aloofness. So these are the extremes. And it said that the main characteristic of equanimity is resting the mind before it falls into extremes. The extremes of reactivity, whether it be attachment or aversion, and the other extreme of that indifference. Sometimes it can be a callous indifference or an apathy. So just to end with um, a story that presents a state of equanimity in my own body-mind when I remember it. And that's something that happened a few years ago when I visited one of our Dharma teachers, my first Dharma teacher, Manindraji, in India. And one of the things that he wanted to do was to ride a boat down the um, Ganges River, uh, where the burning ghats are. It's It's a funny thing, you know, that only a Dharma teacher can want of you to see. He said he wanted me to go around that place, go down that river with him so that maybe there'd be some dead bodies floating on the river. And this is something only your Dharma teacher could want you to see. You know, just that experience of opening to to the rawness of that. So we were doing that. And in fact, Viranyani and I were together and another dear friend. And it was our last day in India. We were going to take a plane uh, later that day to go to um, Varana- to go to uh, Calcutta to be able to go on our way. So we were in Varanasi, and it was before dawn, and we went down to the banks of the river to catch the boat that we had hired. And it was a very clear, warm morning, not a cloud in the sky. We got on the boat, 
and we were going down this river, which was very peaceful at the time. And on one side of um, the boat to the far side, we could see uh, the sun rising, uh, you know, on the horizon of the Ganges River, this very wide river. And so that represented this new life, you know, the new day, new life. And on the other side, going down on the boat, there was death. And to see that, sometimes, you know, we were near enough to see the pyres of wood and um, the bodies there and the families around in all of their sorrow, sadness, and grief. So there was new life, and then there was death, and then there was a sadness and grief that we saw. And yet, right next to me, there was this great joy and appreciation of having a Dharma teacher, of having uh, friends nearby, and being able to be so grateful, be so appreciative of that. So there was joy there. There was sorrow on the banks of the river. The good fortune that I felt uh, we all had to be together, the sympathetic joy, the compassion for seeing the sorrow on the other side. So just being able to hold both sides of that and to hold the beauty of India and the rawness of India at the same time. This is how our hearts can be so big that it can hold all of life in this way. So this is a poem by William Stafford from his book, The Way It Is. And the name of the poem is called The Way It Is. There's a thread you follow. It goes among things that change. People wonder about what you are pursuing. You have to explain about the thread. But it's hard for others to see. While you hold it, you can't get lost. Tragedies happen. People get hurt or die. You suffer and get old. Nothing you can do can stop times unfolding. You never lose the thread. So let's sit for a moment. So thank you for your attention. And again, uh, we'll come back here in the hall at 9.15, so please ring the bell at the appropriate time.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.